Thank you so much, brother. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you. It's a privilege to be in your beautiful country. Thank you for your welcome. I had no idea what happened with the rugby, so I don't care about that. But, uh, um, and I would, I would love to come back and preach on a Sunday. So um, let's do that. That would be great. Um, for for a, a period of my life when I was a teenager, um, I, I went through a, a kind of a two-year phase of being vegetarian and kind of lost, lost that habit after a couple of years. Uh, didn't, just didn't have the self-discipline to continue it. And I kind of say to myself, I've been making up for it ever since, and I'm learning South Africa is a good place to make up for it. Yes. So um, anyway, I've been enjoying your, I've been enjoying your food. Someone, someone told me that the uh, South African word for salad is chicken. <laughs> oh dear. Well, um, our topic tonight is, is, is God anti-gay. I, I wrote a book with that title, and the reason we have that title is because that's a question or a concern or a sentiment that many people have. Um, I've heard that question or variations of that question more times than I can count. Um, I've had many friends who are, are gay or close to people who are gay wanting to know is, you know, does, does God hate people who are gay? And so it's an important topic for us to think about. I'm, I'm grateful to you for having this as a, a topic you're willing to engage with and think about. I want to thank all of you for coming this evening and for caring about this, this issue. Um, it really matters. And it matters because people matter. Uh, many of us will have people who are close to us who identify as gay. And so when we think about a question like this, we're realising this is not a theoretical question. Uh, when we hear this question being raised, we are thinking of faces of people very dear to us. And for some of us, it's even closer to home than that. It's not just that we have someone very close to us who identifies as gay, but maybe for some of us, this is part of our own experience. Maybe there's a number of us in the room for whom that is the case. And uh, I want to share a bit of my own journey because uh, when I was a, a teenager, in, in, you know, apart from trying to and failing to be a vegetarian for very long, uh, one of the other things I was kind of trying to wrap my head around was I was becoming gradually aware that I was attracted to men and not attracted to women at least in kind of romantic, sexual kinds of ways. Uh, the first kind of indication of this was when I was 14 or 15. My, my best friend at high school uh, started dating his first ever girlfriend. And I remember it was a Monday morning and there was a gang of us kind of catching up on each other's news from the weekend. And my friend sort of said to everyone, yeah, I just got together with this girl and we're, we're dating now. And all my friends were excited for him. Now, we're English, so, you know, we're not very expressive. So when I say excited, I mean, you know, this is, okay, this is, this is what an English person does when they're excited. They go, huh. Anyway, so they were, they were excited for him, and yet, and I didn't understand why, I just felt crushed. I didn't know what was going on. Why, why am I suddenly feeling so devastated? 
looking back on it, I was already beginning to form a kind of an emotional attachment to him. And so that the idea of him now being very intimate and close to somebody else left me feeling very sort of threatened and vulnerable and, and sad and depressed and, and all the rest of it. And over the next kind of couple of years, I, I began to, to realise I was just different to many of my friends. Uh, the main topic of conversation among my, my friendship group was, was almost entirely, you know, which, which girls do you like? And I just sort of became aware that I had, I had girls that I was really good friends with and really enjoyed being around, but I just didn't have that kind of physical attraction. And it was painful because I was at an age where I just wanted to fit in and be the same as my friends and to, to be like them. Uh, this, was in the, this was in the early 90s. Um, it was a very different world to the one we live in now. Uh, it would not have been a, a welcome admission if I had said to them, actually, I don't feel attracted to girls. I think I might be attracted to guys. Uh, that would not have gone well. And so I was confused, I was frightened, I was feeling lonely about the whole thing. Uh, I was already self-conscious enough as a, as a teenager. I didn't need this extra layer of, of complication and, you know, challenge to, to just fitting in with everybody else. Uh, by the way, my, my, my kind of, um, my strategy when people did say to me, so who do you like, Sam? My strategy was just to think of the first girl's name I could get in my head and then just say that word. So my friends would say, who, who do you like, Sam? Is there someone that you really like? And I'd go, uh, Denise. Denise, I like, I like Denise. And then they'd, they'd go, oh, um, who's Denise? Do we, do we know her? And I'd be like, um, actually, I don't think you do. No, I think um, she's, she's not from around here. Uh, she's from Norway. So, no, you, you won't know her, you won't ever meet her. No one seems to pick up on the fact that Denise is not a typical Norwegian name, but, uh, but there we go. It was, a, it was a difficult time of my life. And I remember when I was 17, I was just waiting to catch the bus home one day and I was just kind of, my mind was in its own little world. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I'm gay. I think that's what this is. And as, as soon as that phrase kind of entered my mind, I kind of thought, yeah, that, that must be the case. I don't have these romantic and physical feelings for girls. I, I do have them for one or two guys. And as that realisation sank in, I began to think, okay, so what do I do with that? And again, my first thought was, I don't want anyone around here to ever know. And my second thought was, I'm applying to, to different universities and, and they were all in other cities. And I knew in those days that these universities had what were then LGB societies. We hadn't got as far as the T and the Q and the I and the, the other letters. But I remember thinking, okay, well, maybe if there's these LGB groups at these different universities, maybe when I go to university, this is something I can then explore. That was my plan. And I thought I can, I can kind of explore my sexuality there and no one at home would ever need to know. And a lot of you look younger than me, so this is just going to show you how catastrophically old I am. But this was before the internet. So it was quite conceivable to lead a double life. Uh, we weren't, you know, Snapchatting every waking moment of, of our day and I could be one thing in one place and, and something else back home. That was my plan. But... <laughs> In between standing at that bus stop 
and going to university, something else happened to me, which I hadn't planned for, I hadn't anticipated, wasn't part of my kind of plan for my life, but I became a Christian. Whoops, didn't mean, that, didn't mean for that to happen, but I had a really good friend who was a Christian. Uh, he was someone who impressed me with his, his integrity. Uh, many of my friendships around that time felt a little bit fickle and, you know, you never quite knew if you could depend on people, but I knew with this guy that he, if he said something, he meant it. I knew I could trust him. That meant a huge amount to me at that age. And he invited me to his church's youth group. And I remember thinking, well, it's not really my scene, but I do admire this guy. And maybe as, as a part of my friendship to him, I can go along to his youth group and just find out more about what he believes, see what he's into, try and make an effort. And so I went to the youth group. I wasn't in a place where I was spiritually seeking. I wasn't kind of looking for answers or anything like that. But we had a presentation of the gospel. And I realised immediately that what I had imagined Christianity to be was very different from what I was now hearing from the Bible. I had grown up assuming, like many people do, that Christianity is about God congratulating good people. And that if you were good enough and, you know, obnoxious enough, God would let you in and uh, you could then be proud of that. That was my kind of <laughs> perception of Christianity. What I was beginning to hear for the very first time was that Christianity is about God finding lost people. And something in my spirit recognised the word lost. Here's, here's what I began to think as I was, as I was hearing this message. I suddenly, it suddenly dawned on me that if God was there, if God really had made me, I didn't know him. And I was probably supposed to. And that was probably my fault. And so by definition, if, if God was real, I was lost. Because I wasn't at home with my maker. I was ignorant of him, I was oblivious to him. And so I was like, I've got to, I've got to find out more about this. this what, what Jesus is saying is so interesting. I found it so compelling. So I started to go regularly. I began to, to read my Bible for the first time and I started in the New Testament because that looked a bit easier. And so hit Matthew's gospel first and started reading through that. And at every point I thought, wow, Jesus is, he's not as easy as I thought he was, but he is far more compelling. I kind of grew up to my shame, with a mental image of Jesus that he was a bit like Gandhi mixed with one of the Bee Gees. <laughs> he's kind of ethical and, you know, had bright teeth and all that kind of thing. But the Jesus I was encountering in the Scriptures was just far more compelling, far more interesting. And I began to learn that he died for me. And so just a few weeks after first attending that youth group, I remember thinking... I want to follow him. I didn't know anything about the Christian life. I had no idea what being a Christian meant or would involve. I didn't need to know. I just knew I could trust Jesus. I thought if he has died for me and risen again for me, I can build my life on him. 
And whatever he has for me will be okay because it's Jesus. How could the one who died for me and rose again, the one who gave his own life for me, how could he do anything for me that would not be ultimately for my good? So I became a Christian. And as you will imagine from what I had also just shared with you, one of the first questions I had as a new Christian was, well, what does Jesus think about sexuality? Having just kind of begun to recognise something of what was going on inside my own heart, you know, where does Jesus fit into that? Where does that fit into me now being a Christian? I had no idea. So I was eager to find out what Jesus had to say. And there would be many people today who would be surprised to think that Jesus does have anything to say because a common myth today is that when it comes to sexuality, Jesus is neutral. You know, there's, there's a kind of an idea that Jesus cared about justice, he cared about the poor, he cared about things like that, but when it comes to sexuality, he's just, eh, whatever, you know, fine, neutral, don't have a strong view. But it didn't take me many pages of, of Matthew's gospel to realise that wasn't the case. Jesus, to be fair, didn't talk often about it. It's not what his ministry was about. But when he did mention it, he had very significant things to say. And so I just want to share two, ver- two quick passages from Matthew's gospel that, that helped me to begin to kind of get a sense of, of what Jesus and, and I then would discover over the next few years what the whole Bible says about sexuality. So the first place I want us to look at is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. If you've got a, a device with a, with a Bible, do feel free to look that up. If not, just listen in. Um, don't you love it? It's been 2,000 years and we're back to scrolling through Scripture. Uh, in Matthew 5, verse 27, Jesus says... You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, As you know, the best understanding we have is that Jesus would have been talking to Jewish men, uh, most likely in in this circumstance. And as Jesus says those words, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. All of those men would have been going, yeah, yeah, we have heard that. We know that. It was one of the Ten Commandments and they would have, I'm sure, known the Ten Commandments word for word, off by heart. And so as they heard Jesus saying that, they'd be like, yeah, we know, we know that commandment. We've, we've been taught that all our lives. And I'm sure the vast majority of those guys would have been thinking, yeah, I've, I've, I've kept that commandment. I've, I've not been unfaithful to my spouse. I've not you know, messed up or, or interfered with anyone else's marriage. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good on that one, Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been going through other commandments and and showing what they really mean. And I'm sure a lot of his listeners would be thinking, yeah, you you got me with a couple of those other ones, Jesus, and and fair play, but I'm feeling good about this one. The next thing Jesus says in verse 28 is, but I say, and I wonder if just for a moment, (laughs) those listeners were thinking, oh, where's... Where's Jesus going to go with this? You know, you shouldn't commit adultery, but now I say, maybe he's going to loosen things up a bit. And we know how, you know, in, in our kind of culture today, we know how we would complete the sentence. You've, you've, I've heard, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, you've got to be true to your heart. 
Or I say to you, you know, love is love. That's how many of us instinctively would, would complete that sentence. But instead, Jesus says, everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. So what's he saying? He's saying adultery doesn't just take place in a bedroom. It takes place in your heart. Actually, you don't even need the other person to be there to commit adultery. It's not if I can be just, a, you know, uh, a bit blunt. <laughs> it's not just about what you do with your genitals. It's about what you do with your eyes and how you look at someone. It's about what you do with your mind and how you think about someone. And Jesus says, if you are thinking about someone and looking at them in a, in a, in a lustful way, you are going against how God has designed us to be. Uh, we need to remember that it was God's idea to make us as sexual beings. We didn't discover sex behind God's back. He decided in his goodness and wisdom and creativity to give us sexual energy. And he had good purposes for doing so. And Jesus says the moment we start looking at people lustfully, we're actually misusing the sexuality God has given us. Because when you look at someone lustfully, what you're doing is you're turning their sexuality into a commodity. You're turning it into something that exists for you to consume. You're turning it into something that exists to satisfy your appetite. And that contradicts what our sexuality is for. In the Bible, sex is about giving your entire self to another person fully and exclusively and permanently. It's a form of self-giving. And therefore, it needs to happen within the context of, of a covenant where it's, you've got to know it's safe to do that with the other person, that they're willing to, to receive you and they're willing to give themselves to you. It's not about taking what you want from somebody else. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul is talking to, to married couples about um, basically their sex life, he's saying don't abstain from sex in, unless, you know, unless it's for a really short season and, and even then just for kind of like a season of prayer. You need to be, and he, he actually says, he doesn't just say, you know, make sure you're having a healthy sex life. Um, let me find the verse rather than risk making it up. Um, yeah, this is amazing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, in the Roman world that Paul was writing into, every guy hearing that verse would have gone, oh yeah, I'm into that, Paul, preach it, yeah. That's what people had always thought in the Roman world. Yeah, the wife belongs wholesale to the husband. He has complete ownership and authority. She is his property. But then Paul says next, likewise, uh-oh, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. No one had ever said that before. And look at, look at what Paul is doing there. He's not saying, listen, your, your wife's body belongs to you, so take it. Paul is saying, your body belongs to your spouse, 
so give it. It's about giving, not taking. That's why looking with lust is so out of kilter with how God has designed this to work. And if we understand what Jesus is saying, we, we realise he's, he's actually challenging and humbling every single one of us because he's saying the real issue is our hearts. Our hearts naturally are adulterous. This is what we do. Our hearts are lustful. Uh, part of what Jesus is doing in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is he's trying to show people, listen, the Ten Commandments were never given so that we could all prove how obedient we are. They were given to God's people to show God's people your hearts don't line up with how God wants you to be. And you can only, there, only therefore have a relationship with God on the basis of his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. So that is what Jesus is doing here. We're meant to read these words, to receive these words and to think, man, my heart, my heart's a mess. Because as we go on in Matthew's gospel, we then discover Jesus has come to die for people with hearts like that and to give them a new heart. He's not just saying this to diagnose the problem and then just leave us. You know, by the way, all of your hearts are lustful and adulterous and a complete mess. Anyway, cheerio, see you. No, he has come to give his own life precisely because we need him so much. So the first thing I began to realise then as a, as a new believer is that what Jesus teaches about sexuality challenges every single one of us. We're in this thing together. We're all in the same boat here. None of us is really in a position where we can look down on someone else because of their sexual sin. And if there's... If there's even one kind of sexual sinner that Jesus is not good news for, he's not good news for any of us. Second passage I want us to, to look at is, is Matthew 19, uh, verses three to six. Again, where Jesus touches on these, these issues that are so big in our own kind of world at the moment. He says things here that are, are profoundly countercultural, but which we need to hear, we need to come to terms with. So Matthew 19, verse three, there's a, there's a group called the Pharisees. They, they come up to Jesus, we're told to test him. It's amazing, they've got, they have access to the, you know, Jesus walking around in their neighbourhood. If you, if you, you know, if Jesus was, if Jesus was in this building, physically walking around, and you could just go up to him and ask him anything, imagine that, and they go up to him, to try to trap him. That's how dumb we are. God makes himself available and we use it to be a jerk to God. And so we're told they tried to test Jesus by asking the question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That may not be the strategy we would use, but at that time, that was the big hot potato. They're thinking, if we can get Jesus on the record saying anything about this, we can use it against him. Whichever way he goes on it, we'll use that to kind of antagonise from the other side. It's like a kind of gotcha journalist kind of thing. Well, Jesus replies by saying, have you not read, which is, by the way, a great put down for a Pharisee, because they were so kind of proud of how much they knew the Bible. 
And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's referring to Genesis 1. But we're told God at the beginning made us male and female in his image. So Jesus is saying, have you not read, I don't know, page one of your Bible? Did you get that far in your Bible reading plan? But notice what he's doing. He's referring to Genesis 1. We've been made male and female. Verse 5, he then quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He then concludes, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What's he doing? Well, at this point, he's not yet talking about divorce. Because he's saying you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But... (laughs) By going back to Genesis 1, he's also saying, you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand gender. So look at his logic. We have been made male and female. Jesus is saying, that is a real category. We have been made as sexually different as men and women. Notice Jesus doesn't just say, in the beginning... God made people like this, but you know, that was then and this is now and things have changed. No, from the beginning, Jesus has made us male and female. Whatever else the fall has changed and distorted about our human experience, it hasn't removed the fact that God makes us male and female. And Jesus then says, therefore, we have this thing called marriage. In other words, it's because God has made us as sexually differentiated, it is because of that that marriage exists. That's his logic. Now, he's not saying that because God has made us male and female, everyone must get married. Jesus wasn't married. He is saying we can only have this thing called marriage because God has made us male and female. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, marriage is, by definition, between a man and a woman. Now, that may be the most controversial, the most offensive thing Jesus says for for many people in the world today. So let me just say one or two quick things about this very thing Jesus is saying. Uh, The first thing is is we need to realise the reason this is so controversial is that what Jesus says about marriage has always been controversial. It's always been countercultural in one way or another. In some cultures, it's controversial because Jesus says, one man and one woman, not one man and many women. In other cultures, it's controversial because Jesus, we find out later on in other passages that The husband is to love his wife sacrificially. He's actually to lay down his life for his wife. He's not to lord it over her. He's not to kind of dominate her. He's not to be harsh to her. That's controversial in some places. And for many of us today, it's controversial because Jesus says one man and one woman and not two men or two women. Now, the other thing we need to notice about this is there's nothing arbitrary here. 
Jesus is not being arbitrary by defining marriage in this way. It's not like he was kind of like, well, I've, I've got to have, a, I've got to have a, a line on marriage. I've got to have a position on that. I'll just flip a coin and, yep, okay, we're going to have marriages between a man and a woman. Sorry, guys. In the whole Bible, the union of a man and a woman in marriage has had special significance. Because from the very, page, the very first pages of the Bible, the union of a man and a woman in marriage is used as a picture of the eventual union of heaven and earth in Jesus. And you may not have thought about it in these terms, but that is what you want. It is heartbreaking living in this world. You don't have to spend more than a, two or three seconds on your, your kind of chosen news app to, to see that this world is heartbreaking. It's exhausting. And the reason is because this world is not heavenly. It's an unheavenly world. And something in us recognises it's not meant to be this way. Actually, because the world, we, we were designed to live in a world that is heavenly. Where, in the, you know, as Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's will is done on earth as in heaven. And that, that is what God is moving everything in the universe towards, that one day there will be a perfect union of heaven and earth. This planet will be like heaven. It will be the world we all want, the world we've all longed for, the world we've been missing, the world we've been nostalgic for. Isn't it significant that we've never lived in a reality other than the one we're in, and yet all of us sense, hang on, this isn't right? Because it's not the world we were made for. And so as a signpost to this grand scheme that God is doing, he's, he's embedded into human society this thing called marriage. It's like a big hint. <laughs> this union of, of man and woman is a, is a union of difference, not a union of sameness because it's pointing to the ultimate union of difference of heaven and earth coming together in Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, we discover that God is not simply the deity. He, is, he describes himself as being a husband. He makes these extraordinary covenant promises to people he loves. He is, if I can use this language, God is a lover. And his people, we learn, are his beloved. They're his bride, sadly, often in the Bible, his unfaithful bride. And it's why Jesus, when he enters the world and uh, starts to walk among us, it's why one of the, the things Jesus calls himself, and it's, it often feels weird to us, is he calls himself the bridegroom. He's saying, listen, I am that, that divine husband from the Old Testament. I am the one who is, is here to bring about that ultimate union. And so in the rest of the Bible, we discover that our, our faith in Jesus is often described in marital language. And the, the great kind of crescendo at the end of the Bible is, is the marriage between Jesus and the church and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, adorned as a bride for her husband. So Jesus is not being arbitrary. This is not random when Jesus says marriage is, is a union between one man and one woman because that union has unique significance and symbolism. So as a, as a young Christian kind of figuring these things out, I quickly began to realise, okay, well, 
the Bible teaches that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Jesus himself talks about that in a couple of places. We're all, we've all fallen short. Jesus is showing us that in Matthew 5. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is saying marriage is between a man and a woman. So I quickly began to realise that if, if I was going to stick to what Jesus says, it wouldn't be right for me to explore those romantic feelings I was experiencing. So I had to make a decision. Now that I know that, that it's not Jesus and fulfilling this particular kind of sexual desire, it's Jesus or this particular kind of sexual fulfilment, I need to choose, what am I going to do? Which way am I going to go on this? And for many people today, the, the, the answer would be obvious. If it's a choice between sexual fulfilment and following some religious leader, well, obviously choose sexual fulfilment. Many people would say today, actually, you're doing yourself harm if you don't. Because sexual fulfilment is how you can be complete and whole and true to yourself and real and flourish. So why be a Christian if, if that's the choice? Well, I just want to give you three reasons. And the first one's going to sound like a cop-out, but it isn't. <laughs> The first reason is because of who Jesus is. If you are framing the question that it's a choice between sexual fulfillment and this kind of religious thing, you're not actually understanding the reality of what's going on. Jesus is not just a religious leader. Jesus is the one who made us. Jesus created you. And when the Bible talks about that kind of thing. It doesn't mean Jesus, you know, Jesus went down to Ikea and picked up a flat pack thing and assembled it and got the Allen keys out and hey presto, you've now been built and assembled. No, when the Bible talks about God making us, what the Bible is saying is God came up with the idea of you. God thought you up. He was having a good day when he did. And this Jesus therefore knows us better than we know ourselves. We're a mystery to ourselves. But not to Jesus. He knows us through and through. Moreover, Jesus loves us more than we love ourselves. Jesus is more committed to our ultimate joy than we are. Friends, if that's true, you'd be a fool not to follow him. Yeah, you might think, well, man, that's going to be tough, though, with you know, having to say no to some of these feelings. But if Jesus really is all of those things, it's going to be better to do what he thinks. His ways are always going to be better. He just knows more about running my life than I do. I don't have a clue. Um, many of my, my friends who aren't Christians still kind of, you know, they think I'm weird, that's fine. And I have to say to them, listen, my decisions in life are not going to make sense to you unless you understand who Jesus is to me. And that's the case for all of us who are Christians. Our, our Christian lives won't make sense unless people get who Jesus really is. Uh, a friend of mine is. Uh, she she works in. A, she has her own little office, and she has uh, a saying that is. She's you know she's had 
framed and is on the wall of her office. And it says, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. It's true, by the way. If you watch a music video without the sound, it's really weird. Those who hear not the music think the dance is mad. And if people don't get who Jesus is, our lives are going to just look bizarre and random. But it also means that when someone says to me, as, as people frequently do and understandably do, when someone says to me, listen, you can't, you can't believe that kind of stuff today. I'll say to them, yeah, I know but I'll, I'll say to them, listen, you may not realise this, but what you're actually telling me to do is to stop being a follower of Jesus. Because I have the beliefs that I have about marriage, not because I've, I've chosen to, but because I have the beliefs I have about Jesus. And I'm convinced of who he is and I'm following him and this is what he says. Do you have the authority to tell me to stop following Jesus? And most people in that kind of context would go, okay, yeah, fair enough. I didn't realise that was the whole thing. I'm not going to tell you to stop being a Christian. Every now and then, though, someone will say, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. If that's what Jesus says, you should not follow him. Well, the answer to that is easy. I'll just say to them, okay, just, just tell me what you've got going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that means I should listen to what you say on this and not what he says. Okay, he died for me and rose again. That's where the bar is currently set. <laughs> if you can offer more than that, I'm, you know, I'm genuinely interested. That's what you're up against. But if, no, no death on the cross for me, no resurrection, no, okay. Well, no offence, but I'm going to stick to Jesus on this. And if you want to persuade me to change my mind, you've got to persuade me that Jesus is not Lord. So if you care enough about this issue, make that your life's aim to, to prove that Jesus is not who he says he is. And I'll see you in church soon. <laughs> Second reason is because of how Jesus calls all of us. I love Jesus for so many reasons, but one of the things I love is, is that Jesus does not hide the cost of discipleship from people who are thinking of becoming disciples. He says in Mark 8 verse 34, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus doesn't hide that in the small print. He doesn't wait till you're already in the door and then spring it on you as a bait and switch. He's open about that. Hey, before you're making these decisions, before you kind of cross the threshold of this thing, you've got to know following me is going to involve saying no to your self. Jesus doesn't put the word self in front of fulfilment. Jesus puts the word self in front of denial. It may be the message of, of, of our culture and so much of our media that you've got to kind of, you know, be true to your heart and follow your heart. But Jesus says, actually, no, you, you've got to be true to his heart. That's the way to really live. He says in the next verse, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Again, Jesus is just being upfront and straightforward with us. He's saying, listen, there are gonna be times when following me feels like it's killing you. There are gonna be moments where it feels like I'm taking life away from you. 
like you're losing your life. But if you are willing to persist with me, you'll realise that actually you've been given real life. The more I deny myself, I'm not becoming less who I am. The more I deny myself and follow Jesus, I actually become the me I'm, I was always supposed to be. I love how Jesus pulls us off. I don't understand how he does it, but I love that he does it. If you take, if you take 50 Christians and make them all more like Jesus, they don't become more like each other. They actually become the true, real versions of themselves that they always sensed they were meant to be. Again, it's, it's telling that all of us have only ever had the life that we have, and yet we still go through this life recognising, I'm not, I'm not doing a very good job of being me. I'm not very good at being a person. And Jesus is the one who gives us our humanity back. And this cost of, of following Jesus applies to everyone. He says there in that, in that verse, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. So again, I began to realise as a new Christian, as, the, as I began to feel some of the cost of discipleship for myself, I, I began to think, okay, well, yeah, but this is the same for everyone. It may land on us in slightly different ways, but it will, it will pinch on all of us. And so it's not like I'm on a worse deal than, than the other Christians are. Uh, someone said to me once, yeah, but you know, the gospel is more costly for you, isn't it, than it is for others? And I remember thinking, well, if you, if you don't think the gospel has been very costly in your life, I don't think it's the gospel of this Jesus that you've received. And to those of us who may feel that the cost of discipleship for our LGBT friends is too high, I want to say to you, I don't think you've started to absorb the cost of discipleship in your own life. Otherwise, you wouldn't say that. Third thing, as we finish up, is what Jesus has to offer us, which we could spend many hours thinking about. <laughs> but I just want to pull out one thing, one example of, of what Jesus uniquely offers. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I remember the first time I read that being a little bit kind of underwhelmed, because in other places, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, or I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm, or I'm the light of the world. And I'm thinking, yeah, those things sound important and urgent, and I need them. I'm, a, I'm an idiot sheep. I need a good shepherd. I, I need the truth. I need the life. I need the way, all of these things. And then Jesus says, and I'm the bread of life. And I'm thinking, huh, what? I mean, well done, I guess. I, I'm pro-bread. Does that help? I was having lunch with someone recently and we went out in a, a, you know, to, a, to a local restaurant and a waiter came up and said, would you like bread for the table? And we were like, no, we're good. 
And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, we think he's saying, would sir like a bit of religion for the table? You can take it, you can leave it, but you know, if you want it, it's there. But at the time of Jesus, if you didn't have bread, you didn't live. No bread meant no life. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is saying, I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I am the only one who can bring you ultimate satisfaction. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is saying, he is the one relationship we will always be able to count on. The one relationship that will never let us down. And we need to hear this because all of us are looking for the bread of life in other places. And one of the most significant places we're looking for the bread of life is romantic fulfillment. We're we're trained to think, well, if I can be romantically fulfilled, then life will be complete. Then I will be happy. Then everything will feel like it's enough. And maybe it does feel like that for like the first two days. But if Jesus is the bread of life, part of the proof of that is going to be that we will never be satisfied outside of Jesus. If you make relationships the bread of life, you will never have enough. If you make money the bread of life, you will never have enough. The richest man who ever lived, Rockefeller, someone once said to him, how much money is enough? He had the honesty to say, just a bit more. And that's the case for all of us. Whatever we are trying to make the bread of life, we will never have enough of because whatever it is, is never gonna be able to satisfy us. Our souls are designed for something outside of this world to be fully satisfied by, and that thing is Jesus. And if we have Jesus, it doesn't matter what else we don't have. And this is why that the message of Jesus is so liberating because I don't have to walk through life thinking, well, my whole sense of fulfillment and completion and happiness rests on whether I can, I can finally get romantic fulfillment or whether I can get married or whether I can get the, the right job or enough friends or the right kind of family or enough power, whatever it is that we attempted to, to chase after. If you have Jesus, you realise actually the rest of it just doesn't matter as much. It's all good stuff. Family's great, marriage is great, work is great, friends are great. But we, we don't have to worship them. And one of the things I, I will say to, you know, to the, the teenagers and, the, and the, the students at my church, I'm, I'm old enough that I can talk about, you know, these, these young people today with their, with their clothes and their music. Um, one of the things I get to say is, listen, if you, if you get together with someone, if you marry someone, because you think that person is going to fulfill all of your emotional needs, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because you're putting a burden on that person they're not designed to bear. You will crush them or they will take advantage of you. Jesus is the bread of life. And he is the one who ultimately satisfies. Friends, thank you for, for listening so, so patiently. We're going to have a, a time of, of Q&A. Thank you.
Um, I truly do feel blessed because um, I just think about the journey that you've been on and uh, the fact that you have, that God has taken you on that journey and that it can be such a benefit to us and so have such insights. And, and so thank you. Thank you again for, for, for that. Um, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I do actually want to ask you something. In this whole journey, can you tell us what has been like some of the most painful or hard parts to navigate being a Christian yeah. and, uh, and obviously having same-sex attracted feelings and those things? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been asked this a, f- a few times over the years in, in different kinds of ways. Someone has said, what's, you know, what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? What's the hardest thing about being a Christian? Yeah. What's the hardest thing about being single? The answer to all of them is the same thing. The hardest thing is just me yeah. and my own heart. Um, yeah, there, there may be trials and opposition and other things that are circumstantial, but um, I'm, you know, no one has failed me or betrayed me or lied to me more than I have. Sure. That's what our hearts are like. Um, I was talking with a with a dear friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, who's he was telling me I've, I've you know, I've just decided I think it's okay for me to date other guys as a Christian, and. I said to him, please don't trust your heart. I said, don't say that personally. I shouldn't trust mine either. Um, yeah, just my, my own, you know, I've been a Christian for 30 years now and it's still so easy for me to be like, oh, God's, God's you know, he's got it in for me. He's not, not you know, all of these things. It, you know, he's proven his, his faithfulness to me so much and it takes like one tiny thing not going well in my life before I'm like, where is God? Where has he gone? What's, you know. So um, the, the hardest thing has just been my, my own heart that is still, it's like one of those shopping trolleys that the wheels don't work and you try to push it that way and it just goes, jump. Um, my heart is still like that. It, it just does my head in. Um, it's exhausting. Um, now, praise God, he, he, when we come to him, he makes us new. So I do have a new heart and a new mind and the spirit within me and I have affections for Christ that I, I didn't have before I was a Christian. I, I hate sin in a way I wouldn't have done before I was a Christian. But I still, the old self is still kicking around in the building and is still, you know, being a pain in the neck. Yeah. And I hear that and I, and I think what I'm hearing you saying is that it's a consistent battle with yourself in order to keep yourself... Yeah, and, there, you know, there are ups and downs and there are, there are seasons, but, you know, the New Testament certainly shows us that, we, you know, a normal part of the Christian life is the battle with sin. Mm. Uh, in fact, the, the, the parts of the New Testament that most talk about our life in the Spirit most talk about our battle with sin. Mm. Yeah. So if you think the sign of having the Spirit is that there's complete peace in the land, mm. it's the opposite. The sign that the Spirit is in us is there's now an almighty battle going on. Mm. And so Paul says in, you know, in places like Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians 5, the, what the spirit wants is different to what our flesh wants. Mm, right. And the two are at loggerheads, they're at war together. Yes. So, we, you know, it's daily part of being a Christian to try to, to put to death our sinful desires and to pursue all that Christ has for us. And in our better moments, we really want to be more like Jesus. Mm. Um, and in our worst moments, we're like, yeah, Maybe sin, is, maybe sin still is the way forwards. I often think about it like this. Um, put your hand up if you like, orange juice. Okay, that's fairly unanimous. Um, put your hand up if you like orange juice just after you've brushed your teeth. 
Now, the orange juice hasn't changed. Your palate has. Something has happened to your taste buds where now orange juice doesn't, doesn't taste as good as it, as it would have done. And when Christ comes into our lives, he begins to change our moral taste buds. And sin just is not as, just, just not as tasty as it used to be. Grace changes our palate, which is why, you know, this is, this is a, a sidebar, but it, it, I need to keep telling this to myself. If you want to move forwards in the Christian life, if you want to move forwards in your obedience, if you want the Christian friend that you're close to to, to move forward in their obedience, they don't need you beating them over the head with a stick. They need more grace. Because in Titus 2, it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's not, it's not you, you know, ranting at me and raving at me and scolding me. Actually, it's God graces us into obedience because the more I taste the grace of Jesus, the more I'm thinking, man, sin, sin, sin sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so we still find ourselves wrestling with temptations. Again, the New Testament expectation is temptation is going to be a feature of our lives. Uh, maybe even something God has delivered us from there's still some temptation to go back into it. That's one of the big themes of the Bible is, is God's people going back into the thing that God has rescued them out of. Um, and we must expect that's going to be the case in our own lives. The sins that God has justified us from, every now and then we're still going to look over our shoulder and go, I kind of still want a bit of that, which is why we've, we've got this, this struggle within us. But we're not struggling in our own strength. Uh, Jesus is with us. He is not intimidated by our sin. He is not looking at the mess in my heart going, yeah, I'm not, I'm really not sure I can do anything with that. Um, You know, when you think of the, the cross of Jesus, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you bring your worst sin. I'll bring myself my best salvation and we'll see who wins here. That's, that's brilliant. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if um, the way that you, you talk or view yourself in this process uh, is a major factor in that. Because I know that um, from listening to this, in your, uh, reading some of the stuff in your books as well, you refer to yourself as same-sex attracted but never, never gay. And uh, I'm wondering if the way we view ourselves helps us out of that or keeps yeah. us stuck in there? Or what do you, what do you think? Yeah, this, this is a big thing in the New Testament is how we see ourselves shapes how we live. And so that's, that's why, you know, the Bible will tell us who we now are in Jesus before telling us how to live. Uh, it's got to be that way first, indicative, then imperative. Um, if I get my identity wrong, I will begin to get obedience wrong. And this is particularly the case, I think, with this issue, because on this issue more than any other, we're so encouraged by our culture to make this particular sin our identity. But if we do that, we're actually, we're significantly hamstringing, is that even a verb? (laughs) We're, We're make, we're, what's the verb for that though 
Making ourselves. Making, well, just we're making ourselves hamstrung. Yeah. Whatever, whatever those words should be in the right order. Yeah. Um, we will be hamstrung in our, yeah. in our efforts in Christian obedience because part of, part of how we are strengthened to say no to sin is realising, hey, that sin, that's not me anymore. Mm. It was, but it's not now because who I am now is who I am in Jesus. Yeah. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Jesus has made us new. And so sin often says to us, this is, this is one of the lies of the devil, but there's, there's some sin that's been a big part of our lives over the years. The lie the devil gives us is, come on, stop pretending to be this, this kind of Christian version of you that you're clearly not. This is who you are. This is what you do. This is how we roll. Here we go. Come on, off we go. And that can feel so compelling. But actually, the, the, the biblical response, and if you want to look into this more, Romans 6 is a great part of the Bible to do so. The biblical answer to that is, um, that is not now who I am. Mm. Who I am has so radically changed that it's now sin that is going against the grain of who I really am and not obedience to Jesus. Mm. Obedience to Jesus is actually me being my true self. That is going with the grain of who I am at my deepest level. Sin actually is, is the thing that cuts across the grain of that. So the way for me to be authentically me is to be in obedience to Jesus. Sure. So how we, how we see ourselves, if we define ourselves by our sin, we're going to make it that much harder to say no to that sin because we'll be then, well, hang on, but if this is who I am, how can I not be it? Mm-hmm. So we, we need to be very clear on that. And it, it concerns me when, you know, Christians from a, from a gay background perhaps are making gayness part of their identity as a Christian because it's an unstable compound. One of those things is going to give mm-hmm. if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to, to live in Christian obedience if we have a sub-Christian identity. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think we're firmly in the, like the area of image and identity and how important this is to uh, you know this topic. I want to ask you something um, about maybe upbringing and what what factors there are in, in what you think, or maybe just some of your your insights and what factors there are in terms of upbringing, our experiences as children, as kids. And I'll tell you why I'm asking this. As the youth pastor, we find ourselves increasingly um, more or more more frequently having to deal with this issue or these kinds of questions of younger individuals, you know what I mean? And, and I wonder, like, what part of this parents feel the pressure of in terms of, like, you know, is it something that I've done in the ch- child's life or is it something that we experience? How, how these things come, apart, come you know, yeah. come out? <laughs> and, um, yeah, maybe you can yeah. give us some insight there. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. There's a very, very easy answer, mm-hmm. which I don't really know. I mean, and let me give you the longer version of that. Um, we're really complicated creatures. I mean, we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and in some cases, you can, you can look at someone's life and, and you can see some things that have obviously been significant in shaping the way that they now are. Yeah. I can think of friends of mine who've, who've, who, you know, who've just been horribly abused mm-hmm. in their past and, and you can see how that is, has shaped them in the present. Um, understandably. But 
if we try to kind of make a, you know, some kind of rule that, well, all people who are gay, it's because of mm. this happened when they were three or whatever it might be. Sometimes there can be things in our upbringing that can be, you know, part of an explanation for why we have some of the propensities we do. But in most cases, we're, we're just more complicated than that. Um, and a, a parent can have done all the right things. And, you know, let's face it, any parent hasn't done all the right things. But even if you have, your, your child would still be a sinner. You can't parent someone out of sin. Um, this, is, this was a, <laughs> sort of an amen from the parents in the room. Um, a very dear friend of mine, when he, when he and his wife began to have, have kids, they had two or three young kids. And I remember my friend saying just how much of a comfort it is that the, the biblical kind of doctrine of original sin that we... We're all born with that sinful propensity that we've inherited from Adam. My friend was saying he'd never realized how comforting that was as a parent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he got back one day and he discovered his, his, there was, you know, his kids were having a play date. There was a couple of other kids visiting. And he saw his child biting one of the other kids. <laughs> and he was like, I, I never taught them to do that. <laughs> and he went up to his wife and said, it just, you've never like, told our kids to bite people. Have you never kind of, you know done that in front of them or something and they were like you can you can do all the right things as a parent you're still going to have a, a head case sinner for a, for a kid um, so I, I'm, I'm wary of people trying to have a simplistic explanation of why people have certain sexual temptations um, there, there are often things that we can learn from those temptations about our own hearts and you know, some of our, our wounds and some of our yearnings and longings, it, it can actually be, it can, it can be instructive to study our temptations. I don't mean to study the thing we're tempted to do, mm. but I mean to think, why does, why does that kind of thing tempt me? Mm. Um, what's going on in my heart there? What does my heart think it's looking for by, by wanting to go down that pathway? And, and to then begin to bring the conversation in, into that. Sometimes there are, are wounds and hurts that we are, we're sort of trying to, to mend ourselves through things like sexual intimacy. That, that's, that is pretty common. Yeah. And uh, I mean, as you're saying, uh, that also kind of, I mean, I'm a new parent as well. That relieves me a bit. I'm like, phew, that uh, <laughs> might not be anything I, I'm doing. Um, but... Maybe this is a follow-up two-pronged kind of question um, in that uh, what if you are a, a child who is experiencing these, these feelings and obviously, um, as we've just debunked now, parents might feel as though if you brought this up, there's an accusatory sort of uh, undertone to, well, that goes along with a child saying, well, I have same-sex attracted feelings, parents immediately go, what have I done wrong? Mm. And that becomes uh, part of the response to the kids. What would you say if to maybe teens or preteens or the, who have these kinds of feelings, how would they, what do they have to do to make these feelings known to their parents? Yeah. And maybe the second prong is, if you were a parent, how do you, <laughs> how do yeah. you respond to these? Um, that's such a good question. So to the young person who may be experiencing some of these feelings, some of these temptations, um, I'd want to say, listen, your, your discovery that this is part of your own sin pattern, 
doesn't make you out of reach of God's love. Mm-hmm. Again, if, if, there's, if there's a category of person who God can't reach, then, then none of us can feel confident. Um, you know, we, we get stuck on the bit where Jesus says, you know, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you know, that's, that's unforgivable. We, we forget the bit Jesus says immediately beforehand, which is all the sins and blasphemies of men can be forgiven. So whatever, whatever flavour of sin we particularly experience, whatever species of, of sexual sin we feel drawn to, um, we're not out of reach of God's love. In fact, the more conscious we are of our need for God's forgiveness, the more the heart of Christ is drawn to us. Mm. That thing that you most think should actually be repelling Jesus away from you is the very reason he's pursuing you. Because he's so compassionate on sinners. Now, to, to the, and I'd also say to that young person, you know, again, culture's gonna, gonna pressure you to make that thing your identity and to make you think that's who you are. It isn't. Um, particularly at that stage of life, these things are still very fluid. The cement is still wet. You may actually have quite different feelings in three years' time, in 10 years' time, whatever it might be. So don't, don't sort of begin to lock this in as being, okay, this is now who I am. Um, and we're not designed to struggle with these things on our own. Um, all of us in the Bible need the encouragement and help of other people. All of us need to be known. Uh, to the parent, I would say, well, what are the things you can do to make it safe for your child to share with you that this is something they're going through? Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine back in, back in England, and uh, he's got sort of fairly young kids, and his niece lives in the same city. She's a, she's a well, when I, this was a couple of years ago, she was then a teenager, she may, may now not be, but, uh, you know, she was also from a Christian home, but she was you know, struggling in, in this area and wasn't walking with the Lord and kept falling out with her parents and it was all very fraught. So he said, why don't you come and live with us? You, know, you can still see a lot of your parents, you're in the same neighbourhood, but it just give you a little bit of space to kind of, you can both, you and your parents can all take a bit of a deep breath if you're living with us for a while. But he said part of the reason he did that was he wanted his, his younger kids to grow up seeing this is how we treat someone who is sinning sexually. They don't get kicked out. They don't get disowned. He wanted the, his kids to see his care for and love for this precious young girl who wasn't at that point walking carefully with the Lord so that as they began to grow up and, and in their own ways discover the ways in which they're sexual sinners, they would know it's going to be okay to talk to dad about this. Dad's not going to judge them and condemn them. So, and if, if a child does share this with you, um, they're going to most likely be nervous of doing so. And so what they need to hear first isn't what you believe about this stuff. They'll need that at, at, the, at some point. What they need first is just reassurance of your love for them. This, this doesn't make them less your child. Um, so just that, that reassurance of, you know, we, we will always be your parents. You will always be precious to us. We will always be here for you. We will always be a, a door you can knock on, a shoulder you can cry on, a, a, a brain you can come and pick if you need advice. Um, 
even before you know whether they're, they're actually going to walk with the Lord or not on this issue, is just, is just to, again, try to embody the heart of Jesus, who is the ally of his enemies and the friend of sinners. And that's so helpful. I think, I think another position to, to, in hearing what you're taking, uh, was saying is that not to take the, the person's decisions as a reflection of our own actions. Uh, they have yeah. their own walk with Jesus. Um, and would you say that this, this advice applies to not just like parents and, and child relationships, but also us in the church and how we, how we love uh, those who are struggling with this issue? Yeah, very much so. So we need, again, we need to... What, one of the key things that makes a church healthy, other than that you know, you're teaching the Bible and all those things and you're orthodox, is that people can be honest. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, pretense is church cancer. Mm. So if, if, if my, my, one of my dear pastors back home, uh, he often says, you can be known or you can be impressive, but you can't be both. Mm. <laughs> so you need to choose which you're, you're going to be. If you're coming to church thinking, I want people to be impressed by me, then you have to hide a lot of things that are true about yourself. And what you're also doing is, you're now making it harder for other people to be honest about themselves. Because you're saying, actually, in this church, we're, we're all going to be like this. Mm. Which makes the person who is, is genuinely looking for, for a saviour, it's going to make them think, well... I'm, I'm not supposed to be here because everyone here looks like they've got their lives together. Yeah. Whereas if you come to church thinking, do you know what? I just need to be known. Yeah. And if that means I'm less impressive, so be it. Yeah. Then actually your, your honesty is, is then going to create safety for other people to be so honest good. with you. So, good. so today's Saturday, tomorrow's Sunday. Let's all resolve in our hearts now that we're going to church tomorrow not to pretend to be Christian, not to have a kind of, you know, the Instagram version of our Christian life, but let's come to church tomorrow determined to be honest and not to pretend. Otherwise, we're just going to kill the church because we're, we're making the gospel then not real. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Sam. What we're going to do is I've got some quick-fire questions. Uh, as you heard, we had our, our Valentine's Day ball yesterday, and there are a couple of questions we asked the teens to uh, ask so that we can, we can bounce them off you. But what we also want to do is get some questions from you guys out in the audience of you. So can I ask that if you do have a question um, that, I don't know, do we have another mic? Uh, we, only, we only have one. Um, what we'll do is, if you can raise your hand and we'll get a mic to you, is that cool? So, okay, I see that there. We just want to get you to, uh, to maybe this quick fire, let's see how quick we can, we can <laughs> get some responses from you, Sam. Don't, uh, don't say quick fire and then ask a really complicated okay. question. Okay. <laughs> okay, these aren't quick fire questions. Um, quick, well, tell us quickly, does God want me to be single or married, or which one's the goal? Uh, the Bible's a bit confusing. <laughs> yep, that's a great question. Um, uh, the answer is, well, God, God shows us in the Bible that both marriage and singleness are 
are great gifts from him. So whichever we find ourselves in, we, we get to experience the goodness of God. Um, if you are presently single, you are experiencing God's good gift of singleness. With all its ups and downs, yeah, it's not always easy. If you are married, you are experiencing the good gift of marriage. And yes, there will be ups and downs with that as well. One of the dangers is, particularly those of us who are single, is we compare the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. <laughs> and we forget there are downs of marriage and there are some ups of singleness. So one of, one of the ways those of us who are married can, can well serve those of us who are single is, again, it's by being honest. Not by, not by dishonouring your spouse by saying how irritating you're finding them this morning or something like that. But just being honest about, yeah, actually, marriage isn't always easy. Uh, I so appreciate married friends of mine who've, who've let me into their lives enough that they, they share with me the, the high points and the low points. I want to celebrate the high points. I don't want them, them to hide that from me. I want, you know, when we rejoice with each other and we, we weep with each other. Um, as, a, as a single guy, one of the things I most want with my married friends is for me to know how I can encourage them, how I can pray for them as, as husbands, which means I need them to be honest with me and say, well, actually, I, I'm aware I'm just not loving my wife well in this part of life, or we're, we're struggling a bit at the moment, or whatever it might be. We're both just tired and we're not as patient with each other, whatever it might be. I, I want to know that stuff because I want to pray for them. But as I receive that stuff, I'm also, it also makes me realise, okay, marriage isn't the, the solution to all the problems in life. What happens is, if, if I get married, I'm, I'm exchanging the opportunities and challenges of singleness for the opportunities and challenges of marriage. So to, to that young person's question, um, God wants you to, to pursue him. And the more we pursue Jesus... Yeah, he may have marriage for us, he may, he may have long-term singleness for us. But the more we pursue Jesus, the more we're thinking, okay, I'm, whatever you have for me, I'm going to be happy with it. Won't just won't matter too much. Um, Paul talks about being content in all circumstances. Being content as a single person doesn't mean trying to pretend that my singleness is the best thing in the world. Being content with marriage or singleness is being content with Jesus as a single person or being content with Jesus as a married person. So that's, that's what we're to strive for. That's oh, very helpful. Thank you so much for that. I've got another one here um, that says, um, <laughs> what if I don't want to get married, but I do just want to love somebody? I do just want to love somebody. Yeah. Oh, awesome question. Um, if that is the case, the, the Bible has fantastic news for you because the, the Bible speaks of love in far broader categories than our culture does. Our culture has funneled love basically down into just romantic love, whereas the Bible speaks of love in, in much broader terms. We, we have access to so many kinds of love as Christians. And let me just give you a couple of quick examples. When, when Jesus says, no greater love has someone than this, as a, to, to look for an example of 
the greatest love, he doesn't turn to marriage, he turns to friendship. No greater love has someone than they lay down their life for their friend. Or you think about John chapter 4, this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. It only occurred to me recently, I've heard, I've heard 1 John 4 read so many times in weddings, it's a passage that is full of love that is never once talking about romantic love. It's talking about the love God has for us and the love we have for one another as God's people. God is love, which means if we're walking in the Lord's ways, we are walking in love with one another. Uh, you can't love someone well by disobeying God. So... And let me just give you one other thing, because I hope this will, this will encourage you. Um, there, at my church in Nashville, there are, there are two precious women who are very dear friends of mine. And they had been a lesbian couple uh, for about 15 years. They even had a, a daughter together. And several years ago, the Lord met them. And they, they both came to faith. One came to faith, and several months later, the other one came to faith as well. Uh, they were living in a different state at the time uh, to, to, to us in Nashville, but they, they had a, a sort of family connection to our pastor. So having kind of come to faith and being like, what do we do now? They phoned him up and said, listen, we, we kind of want to follow Jesus. We, we want to come to church and we know that yours is a church we could come to. But with two women who were a couple and we have a daughter how does this work? What do we do? And my pastor said, well, come and live with us. And let's, let's try to figure this out together. So their very first experience of the Christian life was of, of their family increasing. As this pastor folded, you know, he, he went and built out some extra rooms on his home and, and made sure there's, you know, accommodation for all of, all of them. And they now had a bigger blended family. And they all, you know, said, let, let, you know, they started to take their first steps of discipleship. I, I got to know these, these two wonderful women. I remember having lunch with them about six months after they had moved. And I said to them, listen, I'm just curious. Do you ever miss being a couple? Yeah, that was a long period of your life that you guys were a couple. Do you miss that? And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, that the world would look at you and say you've had a downgrade. You, you were involved in romantic love, meaning of life, and now you are just good friends. Meh, you know. And they looked at me as if I was an idiot, which is, you know, fair enough. Um, <laughs> and they said to me, we are so much closer as sisters in Christ than we ever were as lovers. Sure. So... They were experiencing better and richer love by following the Lord than by trying to follow their own romantic instincts. So, yeah, if you don't want to marry and you do want love, excellent. Yeah. Um, dive, into, dive into your church. And let, let's be the kind of church that, that embodies that reality. Jesus says, by this will all people know that you are my disciples, by your love for each other. Yes. And as, as the, the, the Christian writer from, from the last century, Francis Schaeffer, once wrote, Jesus is giving the world permission to judge us on the basis of whether or not we are loving each other. 
Love is to be so embodied among us, so real among us, that a watching world can only conclude that God is really here. Because this is not explainable in purely earthly terms. Heaven has come down on this group of people. So, man, you can have so much love as someone who's not married. Wow, uh, that's really uh, excellent, mind-blowing, actually. Um, I almost wish uh, there was an app with uh, Sam Albury's responses to my question. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a case for you taking yeah. over Google. <laughs> that uh, app would never have an update. There would never be a kind of better version of it. It would just kind of splutter out after a couple of days. This is such excellent stuff. Thank you, Sam. Um, I've got... Um, Maybe just two more, and then we'll take some, some audience questions over here. Uh, this young person says, if God does care who I have sex with, does he also care how I have sex? Yeah. That's a quick answer. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. God, God cares who we sleep with because he cares about us. It would be so weird if God cared about us so much but was utterly indifferent to that part of our lives. Um, yeah, he really cares about us. He, again, this, this sex thing was his idea, not ours, and he knows that it's meant to be a profound blessing, and if misused, it can be very, very painful. Somebody said that, that, that sex can be a bit like fire. In the fireplace, it's wonderful. It's cozy, it's warm, it, it kind of blesses the whole environment. If it's outside the fireplace, it, burns the, it just burns everything down. It's destructive. So, of course, he cares because he, he's concerned for our welfare. And therefore, he, yeah, um, he's not indifferent to how we do it. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the mechanics, techniques or whatever kind of stuff people would think about like that. The attitude of our heart. Yes. Um, because as I was trying to show from, from 1 Corinthians 7, it's meant to be about self-giving. So here's... You, you guys who are married, here's something you need to hear that I don't think people are telling us, uh, telling you these days. Sex outside of marriage is sinful. That doesn't mean all sex inside marriage isn't. If sex inside marriage is coerced, that is sinful. It's about self-giving. So yeah, God, God cares not just who we have sex with, but, but how we approach that. What is our, what is our attitude? I think that does really deserve a round of applause. There is, there is a huge so. amount of sexual assault that goes on within marriage. Sam, as you're talking, it, it, helps, it just helps me figure out that we don't understand God's intention for sex. Um, and how that we maybe flipped it around uh, so many times in order to fit what we think is the right way that things should be done. Yeah. Um, let's ask this question quickly before we take our first questions from the audience. Um, if I had a family member, and I know you, you, you might have had this many times, who decided to get married, who was gay, uh, is it okay for me to attend this wedding is it, as a Christian? Is it not okay? Yeah. How do, what, what are the rules here? Yeah. And the Pharisees came up to him <laughs> to test him. Um, uh, no, no one has ever got in trouble for how they answered this question. Um, uh, let, me tell you, let me tell you what I think. 
Um, and, and you can, you know, I might be wrong. Um, actually, on anything, I might be wrong. I'm, I'm always not just open to correction, but desirous of it. Mm. I want to I be faithful to Jesus. But my instinct is, this is a wisdom issue. Yeah. I'm, I'm nervous of one answer that is kind of, this answer will fit every single scenario. Life is just really complicated. That's mm. why we have the book of Proverbs, because yeah. the right thing in one situation can look like the opposite of the right thing in another situation. Now, there are really good reasons why a Christian might not want to attend a gay wedding ceremony. Um, their conscience. If your conscience is saying, I don't think I should go, the Bible says, obey your conscience, don't go. You might think, well, if I go, I'm, I'm kind of tacitly approving of what's going on. That, that would be a good reason not to go. But I don't want to say that there will never be a reason why a Christian might go. Because again, that, that things can be really, really complicated. I, I know of one or two instances of uh, believers where they have gone, and I think they've gone with a, with a good Christian conscience. Uh, they, in both cases, they've made it abundantly clear where they stand. So no one is going to be thinking, oh, they, maybe they're for this thing now. But where for, for other reasons they felt, actually, I, I think we ought to be in the room. Um, now, having said that, there are good reasons. For that. There, are also, there are some bad reasons to not go and some bad reasons to go. A bad reason to not go is because you think, hey, people are disgusting and are beneath you. That's a bad reason to not go. Uh, Jesus moves towards sinners, not away from them. A bad reason to go would be, I don't ever want to have conflict. I just want to kind of, you know avoid controversy, I don't want people to ever think I'm, I'm judgmental, that kind of thing. Uh, at, at some point, we've just got to come clean and, and let people know where we stand with things. We want to do that sensitively and graciously and appropriately. Um, but the sort of, I'm just going to try not to ever cause offence. We, we just can't be faithful to Jesus yeah. without at some point causing offence. Yeah. Now, it has to be offence that is caused by the gospel and not, we can't just be jerks and then say, well, ah, yeah, Everyone's, everyone's offended with me because I'm a Christian. No, you're a jerk. Everyone's offended with you because you're a jerk. Um, so here's, here's what I think. Uh, Jesus was full of grace and truth. They go together in Christ. We can't, we can't try and emphasize one at the expense of the other. If we think we have one without the other, we have neither. Because Christian truth is gracious and Christian grace is truthful. So what I most want for, for my gay friends, and I, there's a, a face in my mind as I say these words, I want them to know how much they mean to me. And I want them to know how much Jesus means to me. And generally, if, I can, if I'm sure I'm conveying both of those things, then whatever decisions I'm making about all of these issues, I'm probably making the right one if they're, if they're aware of both of those things. So even if, we, if even if we don't go, we need to make sure that we're not going in a way that lets them know how much they mean to us. So if you feel like you have to say no, say no, but then add to that no an invitation. That's it. I'm, I'm, 
really sorry, I just don't know if I, it's going to be right for me to attend as a Christian, but I'd love to have you guys over sometime soon. Or is there anything else I can do for you? Um, yeah. That's brilliant. I think it does deserve a round of applause. We're going to try and take some, some questions from the audience, if that's okay, Sam, just sure. for the remaining couple of minutes. Uh, can we get, I see a lot of hands up here. <laughs> can I ask you to do this? Um, maybe uh, if you could make your way down to in sort of like a line, and then we can, we can shoot through uh, these questions as you come along. Is that okay? Instead of us running up and down. So just everybody on this side, and let's, uh, let's start over here. Um. Thank you so much, Sam. My I pleasure. think um, this is such a relevant topic that has not been discussed enough in church, in my view. And a lot of queer people actually end up feeling excluded from the community mm. in terms of church. Um, but I actually just want to ask, like, how do you present the truth of the gospel to a queer individual living a queer lifestyle and yet still believes in Christ? Because a lot of my queer friends will actually say, yeah, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, yeah. baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized in water, living a Christian life, but yeah. I'm loving who I love. Like, how do you actually present that truth to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and I think, and again, I'd, it's one of those things where I'd need to know the person to know how to answer it. Um, but probably it will involve many conversations over a long period of time. Um, this is not just a thing you'll resolve in, in one, in one get-together. Um, I, I would probably want to say to them, T tell me more about your, your relationship with Jesus. How did you come to know Jesus? What does he mean to you? Uh, what do you think, you know, what do you think he thinks about these, these things in life? And if they're kind of digging their heels in, um, a question I have asked people in, over the years is, if I could prove to you that Jesus says this is a sin, would you change your mind? Because what I'm trying to establish with that question is, is Jesus their ultimate authority and is Jesus allowed to disagree with them? And I remember saying that to one person I knew and his response was, was Jesus, would never, Jesus would never ask me to stop this relationship. And I remember thinking, if you're putting conditions on what Jesus is and is not allowed to say, then you're not worshipping Jesus. <laughs> Um, one of the ways we know God is real is that he disagrees with us. Um, very often in areas that are, you know, are very sensitive to us. So um, there, there comes a point where I will never not be that person's friend and I want them to know that. And I want to prove that to them over, over a period of time. They will never not be my friend. But there may come a time where I think, okay, I think the Bible would have me treat you as an unbeliever. I'm not saying you definitely are. I'm not claiming to look into your heart and to know where you are. But I think the Bible would have me treat you as an unbeliever because I'm not seeing evidence of repentance here. And I would only come to that decision over a long period of time and all the rest of it. I'll still be a friend to them, but I'm not going to treat them as if I think they're a Christian. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been really great. It's been really great listening to your sermon, your preaching, and what you've been speaking about. Thank you. So the scripture that you had provided was uh, Matthew 19 mm -hmm. um, about man and a woman 
combining together to become one flesh, as well as Mark 8 about staying true to God's heart. Yep. Now, what I want to find out from you is, what is your opinion about transgender? Yep. Reason why <laughs> is because of Matthew 19. Yep. It speaks about man and woman. And yep. you mentioned about there's a lot of controversy, which I totally understand. And people try to avoid those controversy by converting themselves from being a man to a woman or either ways so that they could meet the requirements of Matthew 19. So I want to know if I were to speak to someone who is a transgender, what opinion would you give them? Because hmm. I've got my opinions, but I know they're going to bring out some flesh, some, yeah. some, <laughs> some things about being the flesh, being flesh being nothing, the spirit, and you need to stay true to God. So mm -hmm. if you stay true to God, therefore, let me convert myself to being a woman or a man so that yeah. I could meet the requirements of Matthew 19. Wow. How many... Um how, how many hours do I have to, 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 to address that? Uh, that? That is, I mean, that is so important and it's, a worthy, it's worthy of a, a whole evening just on that. So maybe petition your, your pastor to, 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 to teach on that. Um, yeah, there's so, many, there's so many things that I'd want to say to that question. And I, I'll tell you now, this, this answer will be preliminary and incomplete and inadequate. But here's, here's what I'm thinking. I, again, I want them to know, I want them to know how much they matter. With so many of these kinds of issues, there, there is deep self-hatred. So I want them to know that Genesis 1 tells me they are made in God's image. Something of the glory of God is evident in their life. Uh, they matter profoundly to God above, and therefore they matter to me. Um, they are worthy of my respect, they are worthy of my service, they are worthy of my friendship. Um, and the very same passage that most shows me that, Genesis 1, also shows me that actually it's in our physical creation that God has made us male and female. That is biologically grounded. It's not psychologically determined. Now, that's a painful thing for someone to hear, so I, I want to make sure I'm not just lobbing that out there and then leaving them on their own. If, if I'm going to share this with someone, I need to stick with them and stick by them and, and, and be there to help them process this. Um, but in Genesis 1.27, as, as we're told about God making us as, in his image as men and women, as male and female, uh, that, is, that is a physical category. It's not a self-identity category. The, the Bible doesn't have a category of gender identity. It has our biological sex, male and female, which then in Genesis 2 translates into the man and the woman. Uh, maleness is derived... Sorry, being a man is derived from being a male. Being a woman is derived from being a female. And that is part of God's goodness to us. And this is, this is what I would long for that person to know. And, I'm, you know, it may take people years to kind of be able to truly accept this. I, I want people to know that God was being kind when he created them as a man or when he, when he created them as a woman. And both sexes are to be esteemed. 
Um, there are so many complicated things that, that are kind of going on with questions of gender identity. Sometimes one of the factors is a very negative experience of one of the sexes. And so I, I just want people to know that actually it is great, it's great to be a man. It's great to be a woman. Whichever they were, were created as, I want them to know that was, a, that was a kindness of God to make you like that. And so much of this is fed by unhelpful stereotypes in our culture and sometimes even in our churches as well. And people can think, well, I'm not sure I really am a man because I don't do axe throwing or whatever it is. The culture is saying, this is what a real man looks like. And to think, actually, no, that the Bible shows me that, you know, that there's a range of ways we can be real men. There's a range of ways we can be real women. Think of King David in the Old Testament. He slew a giant. <clears throat> That's a, you know, that, that checks a significant box for what many cultures would say is, is being a real man, is, you know, go and slay people. But David also played the harp and wrote lots of poems. That's also an expression of, of being a godly man. So whether you are the kind of athlete type or the artist type, both can be really honourable expressions of, of, of masculinity. So I'd, I'd want to try and steer them away from some stereotypes that they might be reacting against. Um, but either way, again, I, I want them to know I'm never going to not be a friend to you. And I'm here for the long haul. Um, my, my pastor at home says change in us involves the gospel plus safety plus time. That's how people change. The gospel plus safety plus time. Uh, it takes a long time for us to change. So even if someone is, has got a long way to go, I, I don't want them to be feeling pressured by me to hurry up. I don't want them to, you know, I explained this to you today uh, you know, in a week's time, I expect you now to have fully got, you know, got all of that figured out and straightened your mind and all the rest of it. So, sorry, that, that was, that, there's much more to say on that. But thank you for raising it. Um, Sam, we are running out of time. So, uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to ask if some of these questions, because I've gone through and they are really, really good questions here. Um, but would you mind spending a few minutes sure. after yeah, yeah. Uh, answering some of them? I, I just got one that might be interesting to everybody over here. The lady at the back just wants to ask you this question. And we've discussed it actually uh, before we got here. Okay. But I think everybody needs to hear your answer. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I didn't quite get the end of your personal story, but I was just wondering, is it a matter of deliverance? Do we need to pray for somebody who has these um, attractions for them to be delivered? What, mm. Or is it just they live through life knowing this is who I am? Uh, what, what should be our response in walking with somebody who is yeah. experiencing same-sex attraction? Thank you. That's such a, that's such a good question. Yeah. Um, what, whatever the answer is to that, uh, we need to be consistent. So if someone says, well, this, this form of temptation requires deliverance, I, I want them to show me from the Bible why this requires deliverance, but other forms of temptation, they wouldn't say the same thing. Um, I had someone come up to me once, this was a long time ago now, but someone came up to me once and said, I'm a Christian therapist, I promise I can counsel you 
out of ever experiencing same-sex temptation ever again. I was like, okay, well, interesting. Um, so I said to them, Are you, can you guarantee I will never experience any form of sexual temptation? You know, that if you, if you make me heterosexual, so to speak, can you guarantee that I won't experience heterosexual temptation? They said, well, well no. And I said, well, what am I gaining? All you're offering to do is to exchange one form of temptation for another. That doesn't sound like a net increase in godliness. Um, what, what I most want is, is to be like Jesus and to walk in obedience to Jesus. Um, and I'd say the same thing to someone who says, oh, I think you need to be delivered of this. Okay, if you deliver me of this, am I, I, am I going to be free of all types of sexual temptation? Well, no. Well, then, if you're saying you think this is demonic, what you're really saying is we're going to take out that demon and put in this other one. And then I'll still need delivering, I'll then need delivering from that temptation. So that is not to say God can't just radically... <laughs> dramatically move the needle on this. God is God and can do, do any kind of miracle in, in any of our lives. But I think the New Testament expectation is, you know, the language of the New Testament is when you are tempted, we're to expect temptation and that God will give us what we need to stand under that temptation. Um, again, Romans 6 really helped me with this. Romans 6 showed me, I never have to sin. I'm no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin is not my master because I'm, I'm under grace now. Which doesn't mean I won't ever sin, but it does mean every time I do sin, I never had to. Um, and so in that sense, that, that is the deliverance. Um, sin no longer has authority. I don't have to obey it anymore. Um, and it's knowing that that actually strengthens us to say no to it. Let me just give you one, one quick story as we, as we finish up on this. Um, about five years after I, I left high school, um, they, they invited me back to, to give a, a presentation at our school assembly. Uh, this was a kind of feature of the school. They would, every, every week or so, they'd have a former student come back and just share what they were now up to. And they'd clearly reached the, the bit of the barrel that you know, they invited <laughs> me to come back. And so I hadn't been there for five years. So I remember, you know, walking up the road towards the school entrance and just thinking, man, gosh, wow, five years, sheesh. Um, and, you know, I walked through the school gate and all the, all the pupils there suddenly looked like they were toddlers. You know, they just looked so young. And I remember thinking, ha, huh, I've, I've seen the world. I'm, you know, I'm 22 now or whatever it is, 23 years old and... I know so much more about life than these, these little kids do. Uh, we, I then went into the main hall where we had the school assembly and nothing had changed. The same kind of wooden, uncomfortable seats, the same musty smell. And I suddenly felt like I was 14 again. Uh, the same head teacher stood up as, as had been there when I was there. And he was giving some announcements just before I was going to share my thing. And in the, in the middle of the, announce, in the announcements, he, he suddenly went, sit up straight. And I instinctively went. 
And then I thought, oh, hang on a sec, he was talking to, to some slouching student over there. And then I thought to myself, he's not my head teacher anymore. I don't have to do what he says. I can slouch. But I was so used to obeying that voice that that was my kind of initial reflex. And I had to kind of walk myself into, you know, to sort of mentally take myself on a journey and go, actually, no, he's not my head teacher. He doesn't have authority. I don't have to do what he says. I can, I can do what I like in this situation. And the same thing is true of sin. Sin was our master. We were so attuned to obeying it that when it comes knocking on the door with a list of demands, our, our reflex can often be, oh, all right, yeah, yeah, of course. And we had to go, hang on a sec. No, wait, 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 wait. You're not, you don't have authority over me anymore. I don't have to do what you say. That is, that is the deliverance that Jesus gives us, that we're no longer under the dominion of sin, but we belong to Jesus. And so I can say to temptation, I can say to sin, I'm not yours, I'm his. You're gonna have to deal with him to get to me. Um, and that is what moves the needle on then how we then progress in our Christian lives. Thank you for raising such a, a thoughtful question. Thank you so much, Sam. We do, we do have to uh, end now. It's eight o'clock. But if you do have any other questions, we are going to ask it. Uh, well, the people who wanted to ask the questions are, Sam, you don't mind just spending a few minutes with everybody. I'm happy to. And I, I think I'm right in saying there may be other people in the church here yeah. who'd be happy to have conversations with people too? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll try and make an avenue available for you to ask some more questions. We can get it over to Sam. Uh, you are doing a couple more of these talks around the city as well? Uh, yes. <laughs> and so uh, maybe we'll give you a little bit more information about where else you can catch Sam if you didn't get a chance to uh, engage with him here and you do want to, we'll make that information available. Sam, I think the big question, the last question to answer is, is God anti-gay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a very good question. And the answer is, God, God is anti all the things that contradict his purposes for our lives. Whilst being for us. And it's, it's the most, one of the most scandalous verses in the whole Bible. I just was reading, reading through Romans, minding my own business, was in chapter four. And it suddenly said, God who justifies the wicked... I thought, whoa, God justifies the wicked. So if you're a wicked person, and you are, God loves you so much, he's willing to justify you. So yes, he's anti your wickedness. But his, his, his policy to wicked people is to move towards them in love and grace and mercy. And for as long as God is offering you life in his son, he's not against you. Thank you so much. We do want to remind you that some of these questions are answered in Sam's books and material that we do have on sale for you, uh, just outside in the foyer over here. The one, uh, we know your book is God Anti-Gay. You've got uh, seven biggest myths about, or seven myths about singleness, if that's correct. Uh, and why does God care who I sleep with? And what does God have to say about my body? Am I missing any of them, Sam? Why does God care who I 
I got them. So we're going to ask you to please go out there. Please support. Go and get. There's more answers out there. Uh, go and grab the books. I can tell you that I've I've started reading some of these. I've got some of these on podcast. Pod, well, there's a podcast you have as well. I turn this off. Uh, there's a podcast I host with my one of my pastors back home called "You're Not Crazy," yeah. um, and it, it's gospel sanity. It's, it's it's kind of designed for young pastors, but actually the vast majority of our listeners aren't young pastors. So you know, we, we've given up trying to be specific to that. Um, but it, it's really just trying to give us in a, in a very crazy, confusing, angry world. Yeah. It's just trying to be a way of helping us into the relief, the sanity, uh, the rest <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that we find in Jesus. Well, there we go. We'll try and get those links available for you. And one more thing I've got. I've signed up to a thing called the Identity Project, which Sam has contributed to as well with a, with a bunch of other theologians. And they help you answer these questions for, for everybody, actually. Um, your kids, how to guide them through identity issues, all of these things. Please go and check it out. It's called The Identity Project. Um, I'm going to ask Cross to get, come up here, and won't you please uh, stand with us and reach your hands out of Sam. We really do want to pray for him. We do thank God for the journey that he's been on, that he has been such an amazing blessing. And uh, Sam, your heart to see everybody come to Christ is uh, exemplary, and we, we commend you for that. Pastor Greg. Amen. Sam, we do want to say thank you so much. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your honesty and your realness. Thank you for writing the books. Guys, uh, Seven Myths of Singleness. If you're single, just go and read that book. It will change your life. Let's just pray together. Father, we just thank you for Sam, Lord God. We just pray your blessing upon him. We thank you for the, the deposit he's going to leave in South Africa, Lord God. We thank you for the wisdom and experience and grace and for the, the wonderful heart he has to just share you, Lord God, regardless of gender, identity, of sexuality, of whatever's going on, Lord God, that you are all that matters, Jesus. And God, for all of us in this room, Lord God, we ask right now, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us. Reveal your Son to us, Lord. Reveal the majesty and wonder and beauty and grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord God. May every one of us, God, contemplate our relationship with you, Lord God. And may we never be the same again because of it, Lord God. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus, amen.